Okay, so we have two Bible readings this morning, and the first is on page 849 of the Bibles you should have with you, Um, and it's Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. Page 849. Yep. Okay, Amos chapter 9, beginning at verse 11. In that day, I will restore the fallen booth of David... I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that are called by my name. This is the Lord's declaration. He will do this. Hear this. The days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them. Yahweh, your God, has spoken. And if you'll flick over to page 977, we're going to read John chapter 2. It's page 977. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. When the chief servant tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, then, after people have drunk freely, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, together with his mother, his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. The Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple complex, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, "'Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace.'" And his disciples remembered that it is written, 
Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, What sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This sanctuary took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Hey, that's better. Good to see you all. Uh, I'm Simon. I'm one of the pastors here at Church by the Bridge. If I haven't met you, it's nice to see you. Um, I uh, look after primarily 8am and Lavender Bay, our church plant across the other side of the bridge. Uh, Wonderful to be back. I haven't been here for a while. Um, And so good to be in John. I absolutely love John's gospel. Uh, It's a beautiful thing. Um, We haven't got the screen today, uh, and I have a big one statement sort of phrase that I was hoping to sort of have flashing up on the screen sort of the whole time. Uh, So if you're a note taker and you've got one of these little booklets, here's the big one liner uh, for today. Are you ready? Jesus pours out his glory so that all people may feast in the age to come. Do you get that? Jesus pours out his glory so that all people may feast in the age to come. If you have no idea what that phrase means, that's okay. We're going to look at the passage now and hopefully that'll come come through. Would you pray with me as we look at God's word this morning? Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that as we come together this morning and seek to understand your word, that you might grant us the understanding that we seek. We pray, Father, that we might know, understand and believe and live in the light of the truth that you have revealed to us. So we ask that, Father, we would see Jesus this morning, that we would love Jesus this morning, that we would hear him and have life in his name. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've felt the jolt from chapter 1 to chapter 2 of John's Gospel. Did anyone feel the jolt from 1 to 2? Not really. I don't think you did. Let me tell you, um, there is a big jolt. We don't notice the jolt from chapter 1 to chapter 2 in John's Gospel because of the chapter divisions that we have. But when you compare John chapter 1 to John chapter 2, there's this massive jolt that happens. Back in chapter 1, we are given this epic picture of Jesus. We hear in chapter 1, in the prologue, that the Word, who was always with God, is God himself. The Word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. Here is something so important, so significant, it's on the most epic, largest scale possible. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus God, man, came and dwelt among us. Further on in chapter 1, we get the testimony of John the Baptist. Remember, John sees Jesus coming down the road, chapter 1, verse 29, and says, Look, or behold, in the old language, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. 
Here is the one for whom the whole of the Old Testament was waiting for. And he comes walking down the road. Here is the one who will answer the problem of human sin and make things right, a way for us to be right with God again. We're on a huge scale, an epic scale, a massive vision of Jesus. The great Redeemer has come. And then in the last third of chapter 1, Jesus calls his first disciples. And the chapter actually ends with the call of Nathaniel, you might remember, and the epic dimension remains. Uh, Jesus replies to Nathaniel, Do you only believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Basically, Jesus says to Nathaniel, You ain't seen nothing yet. Just wait. And then verse 51, Jesus goes on, I assure you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus will be the stairway to heaven. And that's who we see. Epic. And then this grand promise is ringing in our ears and we carry on into John chapter 2. And we come across these two incidents that were recorded for us. The wedding at Cana and the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. They're familiar stories, aren't they? If you've been around church for longer than this morning, you will know about these stories. Favourite Sunday school material. But they've also raised enormous problems for people. People have said, are they any more than just a sort of a party trick, a parlour trick, a magic trick that Jesus does, turning water into wine? How significant is that? Is what happens in the temple just merely a, a random act of vandalism on the part of Jesus? Turning over tables, chasing out honest businessmen from their kind of workplace. After all, these events are the first recorded acts of Jesus' ministry by John. You might expect that these would sort of set the agenda for the rest of Jesus' ministry. Wouldn't they sort of give us a window into who Jesus is and why Jesus has come? But what use is turning water into wine? Turning tables over in the temple? Whatever happened to that epic vision of John chapter 1? We need to look just a little closely this morning at what actually happened in these events to understand and answer those particular questions. So come with me, have your Bible open at chapter 2 of John's Gospel. It's much better looking at the Word of God than at me. Uh, that's the idea. I'm not sweeter than honey and more fine than gold and silver. God's Word is that. So let's have our heads in the Bible. This first incident, chapter 2, verse 1, takes place. It's a very simple, ordinary scene. We come from the jolt of one into this kind of little wedding scene. Celebration of a wedding, a great, joyful occasion. People becoming a new family, the blessing of God, all kinds of hope for the future laid out for us. And as it would have been in Palestine, as it is in many parts of the world these days, this celebration would have gone on for days. It would have been an epic event at a great expense of the bridegroom and his family. Many guests were invited. All the people of the village would come for day upon day upon day of feasting and drinking. And it's all happening in the little town in Cana, up north in Galilee. We don't know who's getting married. The bridegroom mentioned in verse 9 remains anonymous to us. Uh, it may well have been someone known to Jesus. It could have been the mother of... Uh, it could have been... Uh, his whole family, sorry, come, and the disciples come as well. Maybe one of the daughters of Mary, maybe a half-sister of Jesus, for all we know. But what we do know is in the midst of the celebration, quite unexpectedly, the wine runs out. Now, to many of us, that may not be a big deal. 
Many of us may have been Christians for a long time and gone to many a dry wedding where there's been no alcohol served and so, well, running out of wine was never a problem at the beginning, so it's no longer a problem at this point. You might have been to a wedding where the wine's run out and thank the Lord there's a BWS on the corner, we can just go and grab some more wine and sort of replenish the stocks. What's the big deal? It's a matter of scandal, that's what the big deal is, to undercater at such functions. It could lead to ridicule for the one who invited. It could actually even lead lead to legal action against the person. After all, the people, the guests had left everything to come to the function. And this man had shamed them by not providing. See, it was a much more serious matter than perhaps we really appreciate in that culture and in that time. And Jesus' mother, she raises the matter with Jesus. Look down in verse 3. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. I like that. Some people suggest that she was just kind of passing on the news. Oh, look, they've run out of wine. Other people think she might have been gossiping. Hey, Jesus, look, they've run out of wine. It's going to be a scandal. Get ready for the new idea coming out this week. I don't know. Who knows? I don't think that's the case. Jesus' mother raises the question. Everything she says, though, she says with expectation that Jesus can do something about it. Perhaps she knew, perhaps she'd known for some time that her son could be quite helpful in situations like this. I don't know exactly, uh, she may not have known exactly what he was going to do, but she simply alerts Jesus to the situation. And she sort of leaves it there. And then Jesus responds in verse 4, What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. The words that Jesus utters here to his mother are uttered with courtesy, yet also at the same time, they're a bit abrupt, aren't they? Our translations kind of try to tidy up Jesus' words at this point, presumably because the editor's a bit nervous about making Jesus kind of sound a bit rude at this point. But Jesus isn't being rude. He's simply insisting that his agenda, what he has come into the world to do, will not be set by somebody else. It won't be his relationship with his mother that will direct what he's come into the world to do, nor will it be anyone else's agenda, human advice or manipulation. He's not a parlour magician. He's not just here to perform a nice couple of magic tricks to kind of wow the crowds. No, he doesn't just perform on demand. He's come with a larger, bigger, epic purpose. He's come to do his father's will. And therefore, his hour is not yet. The word hour is a word that will keep popping up time and time again in John's gospel. And what we're seeing there is the hour is the hour of Jesus' death, his sin-bearing death, his death-crushing resurrection, and his glorious exaltation to the right hand of God, which we see ushered in him in a great way. John chapter 12, verse 20 and 23, where Greeks, Gentile people, start coming to Jesus to receive the forgiveness of sins. They see something in Jesus that they want, they desire, and so they come to him. But that hour has not yet come. And in light of what Jesus came to do, asking him to save the bridegroom for a bit of ridicule and embarrassment seems a bit unimportant. Well, Mary must have known that because she says in verse 5, do whatever he tells you to do. She doesn't know what he will do, but she knows that whatever he does will be right. And it is right because there is something far greater going on here than simply avoiding embarrassment. And the clue is given to us in verse 6 of our passage. 
Now six stone jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. I want you to turn to the person next to you. You've got 37 and a half seconds to do this. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, what's the deal with the six jars? Why would John make such a reference to six stone jars? What's the key? This is a big clue in this passage. Turn to the person, 37 and a half seconds. Go. What's the deal with the six jars of wine? Go. Okay, it was just really to give me a break so I get a glass of water. No, no. What's, what does anyone have? A, anyone have a guess? What's what's going on? Why is this such a big clue? Six stone jars. What's the deal with the six stone jars? They're empty. Great, beautiful. Yep. Anything else? Ah, oh, interesting. Yeah, right. All right. That's a mine and a half down there. Look at that. Yeah. Anyone else want to hazard a guess? Let me tell you, let me tell you, let's press on. With the mention of the six stone jars, these big jars were actually brought behind the scenes, as it were. Beyond the questions, the nervous glances of all the servants, beyond the fear, beyond the ridicule, beyond the potential legal accusations and action, we actually brought behind the scene to a confrontation between the old and the new. It's a confrontation that's set up for us in chapter 1, verse 17 of the gospel, where we're told, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. See, it was the law that demanded the ceremonial washing and cleansing, which those six stone jars would provide. Uh, The law of Moses, which was augmented by the scribes and the lawyers down through the centuries, the customs, the requirements, the expectations of the old way, now stand face to face with the Lord, the king of the new way. 500 to 600 litres of water is about to be transformed as a sign that the old way has passed away and the new way has come front and centre. That's about 800 bottles of wine, 65 cases, if you want to know it that way. And so Jesus says to the servants, have a look, verse 7, fill these six stone jars with water, Jesus told them. They filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine First, then after people who have drunk freely, the inferior. But you've kept the fine wine until now. We're so familiar with this story, aren't we? But we need to understand what is happening and why. Here it is. For faced with emptiness, the unexpected and unseenly emptiness, Jesus lavishly provides. And he does so in a way that makes the old just fade into the background. The new, you see, is not only new, it's, it's full, 
face of emptiness of the old. It's so much better, undeniably, unexpectedly better, far superior. So the old must give way for the best has been saved for last. It's come. And John told us this back in chapter 1, verse 16. Indeed, we have all received grace after grace from the fullness of Christ. Six stone jars full of the very best wine, and those jars will never be used the same again. But just remember, it was the bridegroom's responsibility, wasn't it, to provide the banquet with its wine. And so perhaps Jesus here is giving us a glimpse of how he will act as the great bridegroom on that day when the fulfillment of all God's grand epic plans and purposes are celebrated at the wedding banquet in heaven. The new age, the age of the anointed king, the Messiah, the Christ, is shining through the cracks of the old. Friends, here we have a taste of heaven come to earth. Amos the prophet, as we had read just before, said many centuries ago, he's picturing the quantity of wine that will be on offer in the new creation at that wedding banquet, which Jesus will bring about. Uh, Hear the words again. Hear this, verse 13 of chapter 9 in Amos. The days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. Do you see the quantity of wine? Full. He will restore the fortunes of his people Israel. Another 8th century prophet, Isaiah. Amos prophesies about the quantity of wine. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 25, prophesies about a coming day, about the quality of the wine. As Andrew alluded to, we're thinking grange here. We're thinking the finest of fine wine. Hear what Isaiah says. The Lord of hosts will prepare a feast For all the peoples on this mountain, a feast of aged wine, choice meat, finely aged wine. On this mountain, he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all nations. He will destroy death forever. And you might might recognize these words. The Lord will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. From water to wine. From famine to feast, the emptiness of the old way to the fullness, overflowing nature of the new. From old to new. This is so much more than a party trick. This is Jesus fulfilling prophecy as the Messiah, the Son of God. And that new creation will be overflowing with blessing and the quality of it will be beyond what we can imagine. William Sacklin, he was a wine collector some time ago. He took a bottle, you know, as you guys probably do, I don't do this, but he took a bottle of 1787 Chateau Margaux uh, to a restaurant one night. Has anyone done that? Chateau Margaux, 1787. Probably a few lying in most of our cellars somewhere. Back in 1989, he did this, took some friends out for a meal. Uh, The waiter, he gave the waiter the wine and said, would you open this and then would you bring it back to the table? Well, the the waiter, this is like Andrew, the waiter carrying a whole bunch of coffee as well as the bottle of wine tripped over and the coffee spilt and then the wine spilt and smashed all over the floor at a cost of $225,000. The most expensive bottle of wine 
as it was at that time in the world. Apart from this wine, of course. This is the best wine. Because this wine represents the new age, the age of forgiveness, of life, and of hope. And it's a demonstration of Jesus' glory. The glory of the bridegroom, the Messiah, the one who was promised long ago, he has arrived to bring in his new kingdom. And here we have a taste of the new creation. He pours out his glory. And so we move to the second incident. Come with me to the second incident. Temple chaos, 12, verses 12 to 22. Uh, this, that, which was, that which happened in the first recorded visit. This is Jesus' first recorded visit to Jerusalem after his baptism. Verse 13, have a look. The Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple complex, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. This is happening at the time of the Passover. It's the greatest of Jewish festivals. It's a big feast and provides a perfect opportunity to come to Jerusalem to sacrifice as the law required at the temple in Jerusalem. And so, in one sense, it's perfectly reasonable uh, to make animals available to pilgrims. Only certain coins were allowed to be used in the temple complex. In particular, coins that didn't have the face of a human on them. So again, money changes are required. You know, if you're coming from Bowral, I was down in Bowral yesterday, and you need to come to Sydney to make your sacrifice, it's a long way to haul your sheep up, isn't it? And so there's some sheep that you can purchase at the temple, but you've only got Australian dollars, so you need the temple money to pay. So this is just perfectly reasonable. This is the situation. There's no thought here that anything corrupt is going on in the temple itself. We're not told that in this passage. We're not told that people are being ripped off. If they were, we're not told about it. There's no suggestion here that the animals for sacrifice are substandard or that the exchange rate for the coins was in favour of the money changers. But what was going on is they'd set up their stalls in the temple courts And given the special status of the inner courts of the temple, the Holy of Holies and the immediate precinct around, they wouldn't have been setting up their tables and exchanging things in that space. No, they've set up shop. They've taken over space in the one and only place in the temple where a non-Jew might come and sacrifice and come to the living God or pray to him. You see, the Old Testament expectations were that all the nations would come to Jerusalem come to the temple and hear about the living God and there perhaps find mercy. But now that expectation is blocked, it's made impossible. The nations can't come. And just as the wedding in Cana had run out of wine and had failed, we find that the temple also is failing to do what it was called to do. Choked with commerce, there's no time, there's no place for people to come and pray, even just to simply pray for mercy. When Jesus came to that one place where we should have seen the very heart of God's mission for the world, he found it like this. And once again, the emptiness of the old faces the king who brings the new, who brings fullness, the fullness of grace and truth. Have a look at verse 15. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex, their sheep, their oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. His disciples recall Psalm 69 verse 9. 
Those in the temple might have been taking the mission of God and for Israel to the world lightly, but God does not. When God turns up at the temple in Jerusalem, judgment falls. But the meaning of this confrontation and the change that is to come is only made clear by a conversation that Jesus has with the Jewish leaders after the event. Have a look at verse 18. So the Jews replied to him, What sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This sanctuary took 46 years to build, and you'll raise it up in three days. He was speaking of the sanctuary of his body. Notice there, interestingly, the Jewish leaders don't ask why he has done this. Perhaps they know in their hearts that they're doing the wrong thing. Notice they don't call the authorities to have him arrested and to take him away either. They suspect that there is something more here than simple callous vandalism. Now, they don't ask why. They don't call for the police. They demand a sign. And it's strange. Jesus has just given us the first of seven signs we'll see in the gospel at Cana in Galilee. And stranger still, when he does give them a sign, they don't understand, nor do they want the sign. But in this strange conversation where the Jewish leaders never quite get what Jesus is talking about, we get to see the heart of the old order. We see the temple in Jerusalem and we get to see that it has been replaced. Jesus didn't simply come to cleanse the temple, he came to replace the temple. For his body is now the location of God amongst his people. His body will will provide the one true sacrifice for sin, which the whole of the Old Testament has been pointing us towards. And when the Jews take his body, hand it over to the Roman authorities to be destroyed, Jesus does raise it up in three days. Now that the new has come, the old must give way. So friends, as we draw to a close, we're not free to conclude that all we have here in John chapter 2 is a kind of a party trick, a parlor trick, where we have water turning into wine or a bit of vandalism in the temple. Much more is happening here. There's much more at stake. And as you may not have known before, but hopefully you do now, the agenda for Jesus' ministry is established here in this passage. Old is giving way to the new. Not just giving way, but being flooded, being swamped by the new. The ceremonial washing of the Jews is being flooded by the blessing of new wine, so much better than before. The grand temple in Jerusalem, the center of the sacrificial system, the location of blessing of God to all nations is taken over now by the God, Jesus Christ, whose body is the new temple, whose own body is the sacrifice that deals with our sin fully and forever. It's just as John told us in chapter 1, verse 16, grace is replacing grace. Jesus' coming sweeps away the old covenant, brings in the new. Did you notice the response of both of these incidents is exactly the same? Verse 11, Jesus performed his first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And in verse 22, the same response. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the Jesus had made. 
Now is a good time to remember that the entire Gospel of John is written for this purpose, not simply to record an amazing event or two that Jesus did, but it's to call forth the same response in you and me. John tells us, chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, he performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. The Lord of the new age has come. The old must give way, for Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing in him, you may have life in his name. A seat at that heavenly, eternal feast. Jesus pours out, Jesus pours out his glory so that all people may come and feast with him in the age to come. Let's be a people that tell the world that Jesus is this king who has come. And not prevent people from doing that, but burst forth with the glory of who Jesus is. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for what the Lord Jesus has done. And Father, we thank you for recording these events that we might learn just how significant it is that Jesus has come, the Messiah. And we pray that you might grant to us so to believe in him and that his agenda would be the central agenda in our lives. That we would live as his faithful people. And we pray this for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen.